It's a pleasure to welcome Miss Akbari to our program. Professor Akbari teaches in the Department of Applied Psychology and Human Development at the Ontario Institute for the Study of Education at the University of Toronto and uh, has written a piece uh, in The Conversation, one of our favorite websites, entitled, Coronavirus School Closures Could Widen Inequities for Our Youngest Students. Professor Akbari, Emis, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on, and I'm reading the tiny print under the big headline, and it says the interruption to young children's learning is happening precisely at a time when developmental gains matter the most. So in, in the, this long pandemic closure of, of Canadian schools, your, your, your premise here is it's actually most harmful to the, to the smallest people. Yes, uh, as someone who's been in developmental research for 20 years, both uh, at the cellular level and right up to the policy level, we know that if left unaddressed, this will shift uh, developmental trajectories and we will see long-term impacts on our youngest children and and families. Uh, Inequities are being magnified right now and inequities will grow if we don't address them. Uh, research also shows that disadvantaged children benefit most from attending early learning. So it is, this is particularly concerning for, for all children, but particularly concerning for our most vulnerable children. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about what you mean, Amis, by inequities, please. Well, we, we know that, you know, uh, as of April, 91% of learners across the world uh, were affected uh, by, by closures. And the equalizing property, and I want to come back to the, the concept of equalizing because we know we have systemic problems within our education system, but the equalizing properties of education have now been replaced with parental ableism. So what does that mean? That means that those parents that are privileged um, are able to uh, navigate and circumvent these closures. They're able to find alternate and various resources to support their children's learning and their well-being. But those that have technology and internet access challenges, bandwidth challenges, housing and food uh, insecurity challenges, or even having a quiet and safe environment that is conducive to learning, um, those parents that are single parents, that are essential workers, that are either working in the house or outside of the house, uh, those with, um, with mental health challenges, um, and those with family violence and conflict, these are families that are not going to be able to uh, to provide the environment that they know is important for their children, mm-hmm. and that will wi- widen our inequities. Okay, so it's important, I think, just to note, just as a matter of, of fact, as you point out very early on in your article at theconversation.com, in Canada, more than 2.3 million primary age children remain at home. Now, here in, B- in BC, Miss, we had a little bit of a, an experiment. We, we actually reopened our schools for a few weeks. They weren't universally populated. Uh, many parents decided to uh, forego the risk as they saw it, but many other parents had their kids back in school un- under very limited conditions. The older the child, the fewer hours they received. Nonetheless, it was stated right up front to be a dry run for September. Let's see what reconfiguring classrooms can look like. Let's try social distancing and and just basically uh, again trying to to live and and realize the the new distancing uh, considerations that have to go forward. And it was a very interesting experiment. And I think our education people here in BC are happy they did it because it 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 uh, it allowed them uh, some logistical opportunities to figure a few things out uh, is uh, I don't know that it's going to be uh, all that helpful in September but I would suggest it'll be somewhat uh, are there other jurisdictions across the country who have dabbled in this or is BC unique in that regard uh, we've seen an un- uneven, you know, an uneven response across Canada, and that's understandable because education and early learning falls under provincial and territorial jurisdiction. Sure. Um, what we have seen is um, this uneven response. So, for example, within childcare sector, 
um, we've seen in most provinces that childcare has closed and licensed childcare was open for essential workers mm-hmm. in some jurisdictions and not others. Um, we've learned a lot from those that have remained open um, because we've we've learned about you know make potential changes in pedagogical approaches, hygiene practices, uh, safety practices. Um, the 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 challenges is that when we see these openings, uh, we are seeing them as a workforce support. So in order to open the economy, we need to open schools and childcare because parents cannot go to work if they don't have their children in school or in childcare. Uh, we've spent decades advocating for uh, childcare and, and early learning not being uh, just a workforce support, that we have to put children first at the centre of policies. So as the economy reopens and as schools and early learning centres reopen, it has to be with the child at the centre of the policy. Uh, the child must come uh, come in, come at the center because if we don't put the child first, then anything and anything, everything can be education or early learning. Um, when you put the, the child at the center, you will then seek expert recommendations, including that of frontline ECEs. This, is, this has been a big problem. We haven't had at the table those that actually work with children. We haven't had at the policy level teachers and early childhood educators because they are the ones that have been able to deliver and support early learning and development uh, in safe uh, and, and hygienic classrooms. That's what they're trained for. Mm. And yet they're not at the table when these policy decisions are made. Uh, we're going to have to shift uh, pedagogical approaches because we want to make sure that what we're doing with, in terms of keeping our children healthy and safe that we're not inadvertently causing negative effects on their development. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about some of the policy decisions that you're in favor mm -hmm. of going forward, but I really would appreciate a moment of your time here, Professor Akbari, uh, to have a a thought, perhaps uh, some understanding, some empathy for those parents who have been doing their level best to fill the gap for the last few months. And, you know, the education system has responded to one degree or another, again, across the country in varying degrees uh, in terms of distance learning. And we'll talk about remote learning in a second, but just some thoughts about parents and, and, and doing their best to get through all this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Parents are in this uh, incalculable disruption. It is a crushing burden that, that families are, are going through, um, enduring things like loss of income, mental health challenges, um, and, and then all the while trying to create supportive learning environments for their children. Sure. Uh, I mean, we are, and, and we are in an unprecedented time, and we, we are more and more understanding the gender dimension of this pandemic, uh, because often the, the more heavy burden on on care at home with the children and the home learning more often has has fallen on women that's what the research is showing um mothers are also more likely to reduce their working hours depending on the arrangements that they may or may not have for their children which is going to impact their earnings and their careers joined on the line by emis akbari who is a professor at the ontario institute for the study of education in toronto and uh, wrote an article in the at theconversation.com entitled coronavirus school closures could widen inequities for our youngest students and we talked about parents and thank you for expressing uh, the all-important sympathy for for parents who have been struggling with all of this and you point out that moms particularly uh, taking it on the chin during all of this time and then we talked we were aiming towards remote learning here, Amis, before we took the break. And I was just checking the article that you wrote during the news. And one of the things that you say, and it's important, I think, to begin with this premise. Uh, we talk about learning and, and doing what we can with our little kids uh, following the instructions online from the Ministry of Education. But you say online delivery of education cannot substitute for in-person learning. Learning on a screen is not how young children learn the foundational and developmental skills they need. Why not? We know from from research, international research, that young children learn through play and self-inquiry. And and we know that all types of learning from literacy to numeracy uh, delivered through 
to play-based um, with uh, play-based curriculum with rich interaction, educator-child interactions is how young children learn. Okay, they don't learn. They don't learn in a in a directed classroom with a teacher standing uh, at the front. They don't learn through screens. They learn through play, social social play, and inquiry. So this is not how children learn. We know this. Uh, the evidence is strong on this. So delivering. Uh, numeracy and literacy sheets uh, is not the way children are going to learn. And so this, this is a, a particularly concerning when we're talking about online learning for, young, for our youngest children. And youngest being what, kindergarten age, kindergarten through what, grade three, Amis? Um, I mean, we, we're seeing a, what we call a playification of the, of the uh, uh, older years. We're, we're seeing play and self-directed learning moving up through the education system. Uh, but we know from, from early on, at least up into the early elementary, play is, is the way children learn. So right up until grade three, for sure, if, if not beyond. And how, uh, how much do policy, we're, we're talking about policymakers and who's around the table as we go forward with really important policy discussions and decisions over the next few short weeks as we try to use, here's the buzzword, as we try to pivot to the new reality. So uh, as we draft these policies, how critical is it that people at the table understand this notion that computer stuff is fun for little kids, but it's not how they learn best? It's absolutely crucial, vital for those that know how children learn, those that work with young children. So not just researchers like myself, but also early childhood educators, teachers that are in the classrooms on the front line who are skilled and trained to deliver uh, uh, pedagogical approaches, to deliver curriculum while maintaining health and safety at all times. These people should be at the table when important policy decisions are being made in regards to how we move forward from here. Okay, so let's assume, let's let's try two tacks here. Let's try uh, and keep your fingers crossed that all improves to the point enough where after Labor Day, Amis, we can all send the kids back to school. Uh, Highly unlikely I don't know. Who can predict eight weeks from now? I can't. But let's assume for the upside of the conversation that this is possible. Um, So, and of course, we have all of these new distancing and other COVID adjustments to include in the return package. How's that going to work out? Well, that's, you know, we, we are, as you said, in unprecedented times. We are moving in real time. We are, we're, we're making changes Week, week to week, day yep. by day, even hour to hour. And these potential changes uh, in, in policies and pedagogical approaches are going to be necessary before treatments and vaccines are available. And so what do we need to do? We need to have professional learning of educators uh, focused on supporting children as they transition back. A lot of children are going, we, we have, you know, we p- families have been isolated for months. Yep. We, we, they've been, the homes have been marred with violence. Uh, children have been left alone with older siblings because um, parents have to go to work outside of the house, such as essential workers. We need to have our educators ready. Uh, professional learning has to take place to help children transition back, support children that may need catching up on mislearning, um, and also support their social and emotional development during during these times. So that's one thing that we really have to do is we need to prepare for the gaps that have grown over these months that if we don't prepare for, the gaps will continue to widen. Right. Uh, And that is just a function of, again, as you pointed out at the beginning of our conversation, some children have a a better ability uh, to keep up with where they're supposed to be uh, and for a variety of circumstances. But let's flip the coin for a second, Amise, and and, and let's look at the, the, uh, oh boy, the dark side, if you will. What happens, for example, if there's a second wave? Look what's going on south of the border this weekend. Mm -hmm. 50,000 new cases a day. So what happens if this this happens, God forbid, in Canada this September and everybody has to stay home more? What's that going to look like? Well, that's that's where that's where I my my focus on the paper really was is that where do we put our efforts if we are stuck at home? Yep. With we have access to quote unquote online learning. Um Educators are the only ones that have almost daily contact with families. And so there's a real opportunity there that instead of 
you know, focusing on literacy and numeracy, that we focus on social well-being of families to make sure that we have frequent check-ins. How are families doing? Do they need referral to services? Um, what supports can, can educators um, get for them to, in order to support them while they're, while they're at home? Because we can catch up on learning to a point. What we can't catch up on is the devastating impact that this may have on social and emotional development of young children. So using online time to continue services, referrals, check-ins, ensuring that these daily interactions take place, that families know that they have support through educators, and educators therefore also need improved um, training to be able to support uh, the social and emotional well-being of families. Mm-hmm. So that's where the focus should be. Should we be locked down again? Should a second wave come? We need to focus on the social well-being, emotional well-being of families. No question about it. And a lot of teachers online, and my experience is limited here to British Columbia, but I, uh, we're certainly seeing a lot of incredible individual efforts on the part of some educators to, 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 to reach out to those kids. Uh, final question to you, Professor Akbari, and we're great to have you uh, with us this morning. Uh, let's, because I, I wanted to talk about this deficiency you just addressed. You can always catch up on the learning, you said. Uh, but, you know, some of these kids are set back quite to, a bit. To a point. To a point. <laughs> exactly. Because we don't, you know, right now the focus, as I, as I said, should be on social-emotional development. Sure. Because without that, without that, that is the foundation of learning. So we can better catch up on literacy and numeracy when we have a, a social and emotional well-being. So the catch-up is absolutely, many families are, are falling further and further behind. But without the foundation of social and emotional well-being, our, our attempts to catch up on literacy and numeracy and other uh, academic, more scholastic areas is going to, to be, uh, the attempts will be futile. So we really need to first, the priority should be set on the well-being of children, their social-emotional health, their mental health, so that we can then use that as a foundation to catch up on learning when they return to school. And I'm assuming you're hoping that that is the essence of the conversation at these policy discussions that will take place between now and Labor Day. I I absolutely do hope so. I think we we need to focus on social-emotional well-being. We need to have a partnered response, a holistic approach, um, to, that takes into account the entire child and, and, and the family, including their mental health. And we need to focus also on the professional learning, professional development uh, learning of, of our frontline educators. Professor Amis Afbari, thank you very much for this. It's been a pleasure having you on the program. Very provocative stuff and a great article. I recommend it highly to our listeners. It's available at theconversation.com. Thanks, Amis. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Amis Akbari from the University of Toronto. It is the 4th of July. It is Independence Day in the United States of America. And on this occasion, it's a pleasure for us here at CKNW to welcome Bruce Heyman to our program. Mr. Heyman is the former United States ambassador to Canada. And more recently, he's the author of the best-selling memoir, The Art of Diplomacy, Strengthening the Canada-U.S. Relationship in Times of Uncertainty, which he co-wrote with his wife, Vicki. Ambassador Heyman, good morning, sir. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Happy uh, Canada Day, a little late, and uh, 4th of July to my fellow Americans on both sides of the border. Well, it's great to have you with us, Ambassador. You're in Aspen, Colorado this morning. You have spent more than a few July 1sts, however, celebrating that day with Canadians. Uh, what was your what are your fondest memories of July 1st uh, during your time as ambassador up here in Ottawa? So on July 1st, you know, most of those July 1st when I was the US ambassador, there were great celebrations on the lawn in front of uh, Parliament on Parliament Hill. And we had really great seats up with the prime minister, whether it was Stephen Harper or Justin Trudeau and family. And, you know, one one event I remember so clearly is while we were there, the governor general and his wife, as we were walking out, said, hey, what are you doing for lunch? And I'm like, like, what do I have plans for lunch? Why do you ask? Come on over to the house. And, of course, you know, we come over to the house, uh, which the governor general's house is a is a bit larger than most homes that I've ever Indeed been in. Indeed it is, yes. In fact, quite a bit. Uh-huh. And quite a bit. And uh, we we shared lunch with their family, and Clara Hughes was sitting at our table, and 
it was just um, a phenomenal memory. But but look, you know, the reality is that the individual day is just a culmination of many days that we spent traveling across the country in every province and every territory and meeting Canadians from every walk of life. And it, it, it really rang true how great a friend and neighbor you all have been for so many years. And I just would like to express my gratitude for that. And uh, the governor general in question, of course, was David Johnson, quite a sociable guy, wasn't he? He was a terrific uh, governor general. We, we really enjoyed having him. Uh, you were appointed ambassador to Canada by President Barack Obama. You resigned in, on January 20th, 2017. That would be the day the Trump administration took office. Did that, was that, is that a, in, in the diplomatic circles, Bruce, we don't know this is this a sort of a pro forma thing if you're an appointee from the previous administration the new guy comes in and uh, has and one would assume many of uh, their appointees already lined up so it's a transfer on on the day on inauguration day a lot of those diplomatic posts turn over as well you know i i would say that this was a bit more abrupt and jarring than uh, others in the past um that being said, I reached out to the Trump administration after the uh, election, and I offered up um, time to sit down and do briefings. I offered up time to communicate the things that I've learned while in Canada, mm-hmm. and I offered up, if, if they so desired, uh, a smooth handover of activities Um uh, but what the Trump team did was they just fired everybody in the Obama administration and uh, didn't seem to care about the transfer of power in a smooth way. They just basically said everybody has to be out. So did you know who your replacement was going to be at the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa? And did you have any chance to communicate with that individual? Good question. The answer was he he did I don't think he anticipated, nor did his team anticipate, that they were going to win. And if you remember, Chris Christie, the governor from New Jersey, right. uh, was in charge at the time of transition. But once he won, um, I think that the president's son had Chris Christie fired. And so they they virtually had no transition team really working effectively across government. I'm sure there were some people there. Uh, so there were there was no appointment. There was no body coming in to take over. And so what ends up happening is the deputy who is sitting there in charge just operates as a charge d'affaires sure. um, and effectively runs the embassy and the functionality. But there will be no ambassador for a number of months. Interesting stuff. Now, uh, how long ago or how long after you left your posting as ambassador to Canada, did you and your wife, Vicky, sit down and tap out the art of diplomacy? So it was interesting. You know, I, I thought, like most ambassadors, especially political ambassadors, that, you know, look, we're just going to go back to the private life, do our thing. And lo and behold, um, about mid-year, um, I, the phone started ringing off the hook and it were Canadians like yourself from, from media across the country and political pundits and otherwise were saying, what the heck's going on? And, um, if you all recall, the president started taking shots at, at Canada, uh, for steel and aluminum on the basis of national security right, yeah. and then just, just did, disrupted the G7 meeting and behavior was so poor that, you know, look, it wasn't my intent, but I felt that I had to defend the relationship. And so I just kind of, as, as private citizen ambassador, interesting in the U S you get to retain your title for life. That's right. I then came to realize that it comes with responsibility. And, you know, so I swore in, um, an oath of office to protect the Constitution of the United States against enemies, foreign and domestic. But when you're done being ambassador, they don't say, okay, you can swear out. Right, right, right. So I believed in my mind, and I still believe to this day, that I'm under oath to protect the Constitution of the United States, and I have that responsibility. So 
I went in and started protecting and defending the Canada-U.S. relationship and defending the importance of it and did that on U.S. national media. And if you recall, when Peter Navarro said there was a special place in hell for the prime minister of Canada, That's right, national, yes. U.S. national TV, mm-hmm. I went on the next day and did a whole sweep of U.S. national television and demanded an apology. I said that was no way to treat anyone coming out of the White House, from the White House, uh, you shouldn't even treat an adversary that way, no less your best friend. And we got the first apology out of the White House. And so I felt that that was, you know, I felt in, in a small way that I'm making some effort. And then we were approached um, by Simon and Schuster and said, we think you and Vicki have a story um, on your travels and your time in Canada, the people that you've met, the experiences that you've had with two different prime ministers. And would you, you know, want to write a book? We'd like to, you know, help you with that and, and, and give you a contract. And I'm like, really? Oh, okay. So we didn't, we, it wasn't something that we, you know, had in our mind all along. It was some, you know, it was really, you know, the folks in Canada approached us and said, we want to hear more of the story. And I was just honored to, have that opportunity of course the uh the 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 irony of the title uh, is not lost on many readers either bruce Uh, the art of diplomacy all about the guy who wrote the art of the deal Uh, our guest joining us from aspen colorado is bruce Heyman. mr Heyman was the united states ambassador to canada uh, for uh, several years appointed by president barack obama he is also the author of a new book which is the art of diplomacy strengthening the canada u.s relationship in times of uncertainty. And, uh, Ambassador, I wanted to just draw your attention to uh, the Mount Rushmore speech last night, a 4th of July event, ostensibly very much a campaign event from what we were able to see. Uh, Just one headline for your comment uh, to set up a a, a chat about what's going on down there in the States. Here's this morning's synopsis on one network. In a jaw-dropping speech that amounted to culture war bonfire, the president framed protesters as a nefarious left-wing mob that intends to, quote, end America. Why is the, the strategy of divide and conquer the number one way to get reelected for this guy? It is so deeply upsetting. It is so hurtful that a president uses uh, U.S. taxpayer dollars on the eve of our... Fourth of July to divide the country. And albeit since the day he got in, remember we we had implemented, and I say we, I mean he, that Muslim travel ban. Remember that? Oh, sure, yeah. That right. All those various countries mm-hmm. and all of a sudden planes were, you know, people were pulled off planes and families were divided and protests at the airport. His actions have caused now something so upsetting, and that is there's an American travel ban around the world. That's right. And it's because of how we've handled our things at home, namely this pandemic. But here's a man who uses racist language, white supremacist language, misogynistic language. He he is a divider-in-chief. He is way behind in the polls as of right now, and he is, um, in sports metaphors, throwing Hail Marys, like going for, like, i got to do something so incredibly disruptive to change the story. Mm -hmm. And I think his approach on the pandemic in and of itself, trying to do what a lot of people have deemed to be magical thinking, like it's just going to disappear, go away, it's a hoax, it's, you know, don't worry about it, no mask, none of this stuff. And he soon realized that this behavior, or at least we're realizing in our country, that when you even look at the graphs of these curves of how many people are impacted and compare them to Canada or the European Union or Asia or anywhere else for that matter, that we're having an explosion here as a result of this crazy behavior. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's deeply, it's deeply disconcerting. So I'm, I'm working very hard to, you know, replace this guy and get our country back on course. I think the country will be in in really dangerous territory if he's reelected. I he'll be the extreme of himself.
So and that's hard to even imagine at this point. Let's talk about somebody you know fairly well. You were appointed to the ambassador's position in Ottawa by Barack Obama. His 2IC, yeah. of course, was Joe Biden, who is now the candidate for the Democratic yeah. Party. Uh, from this distance, Mr. Biden looks fairly frail, to be honest with you. And yet he's doing the wise thing by not saying very much. And I think under the circumstances, that's an outstanding strategy. Sooner or later, he's going to have to square off and debates and so on should he be more vigorous at this time i actually think what what he's doing is working perfectly Mm -hmm. and i think that you know that there are limitations in terms of uh, appropriate traveling and distancing that needs to take place during this pandemic and i think americans appreciate you know someone with empathy honesty and integrity now, you know, granted, he, he isn't the youngest candidate we've ever had running for office by a long stretch. Mm-hmm. That being said, I know the people he has around him currently. I know the people he had around him. So a bit of background for all of your listeners. Um, uh, Joe Biden, the, the vice president of the United States, swore me in as U.S. ambassador okay. in Washington. He, I traveled with him to Vancouver for the Women's World Cup. And if you recall that... That was his first trip after his son had died. That is his first international trip. And he brought his grandkids, his son's kids with him uh, to the Women's World Cup event in Vancouver. And you'll see in the book, I pulled him aside and asked him directly whether he was going to run in 16 and told him, you know, that he would have tremendous support in my view. Um, But he was in such pain at that moment in my conversation with him of the loss of his son. But I also spent time with him in Ottawa after the election. He came up and the prime minister uh, hosted him as a kind of a farewell to the Obama administration state dinner. This, this is a quality, quality person. And he's somebody that has the values that I think would be important to, you know, write this listing ship of state that we have going on right now and do a course correction. He would be president for all the people. Regardless of party, I, you know, I, I'll share with you a story that is not well known. And that is I, I attended a state dinner for Angela Merkel. And this was before my even becoming ambassador. And my wife, Vicky, was sitting next to the vice president. And I was sitting over in between uh, Mitch McConnell and his wife. And um, the toast was made to. Uh, the chancellor, Angela Merkel. Uh And before we sat down, Joe Biden said, I'd like to make another toast. And he reached all the way across the table and said, Mitch, that was Mitch McConnell. He said to compromise, let's work together and get some stuff done. And I was, you know, I was, that was one of my pinch, pinch yourself moments. Like, Mm -hmm. is this really happening here in front of me? Well, literally just a couple of months later, it was one of those times where people were battling over a budget that we actually cared about what we were spending. Um, and what happened? Mitch McConnell says, I don't want to negotiate with Harry Reid anymore. I can't take it. And they said, who would you like to negotiate with? He says, I'd like to sit down with Joe Biden. So I think in my personal experiences with Joe Biden and my travels with him and my conversations with him, you know, I think he would, uh, he's the right man for the right time right now. And we, we've got a lot of healing to do. We've got healing to do internally, but we have healing to do externally with our allies like Canada. All right. Bruce Heyman, thank you for this. Uh, happy Fourth of July. I know it's not the happiest in 244 years, but uh, I know you're going to find a way to enjoy the day, surrounded as you will be by friends and family. Thank you so much for taking a few moments to be with us uh, back up here in Vancouver. We appreciate your time very much. It's a pleasure to have this conversation, and if you're Americans living in Canada, you do have the legal right to vote. And so if you just go to votefromabroad.org, you can get your ballot. And so I just encourage all Americans everywhere to register to vote. This is a good birthday present to the United States today. Be well, be healthy. I hope to break bread with you soon. Thanks, Bruce. Former Ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman, joining us from Aspen, Colorado.
We have the patio person uh, going to talk to us in just a second or two here about another matter. But Sarah Kirby Young is a Vancouver City Councilor who has uh, been very much at the tip of the spear with respect to getting patios for not only restaurants, but even more recently, breweries and distilleries by way of giving these uh, places an opportunity to put more customers in chairs and maybe just maybe break even. Sarah Kirby Young, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Sterling. I think that's one of the best things someone's called me, a patio person. <laughs> that's right. In <laughs> politics, it, it, it can go straight downhill from there, can't it? Uh, you and I have talked about patios in the past, and you and, and Vancouver and, and Surrey's doing it as well, Port Moody's done. I mean, all of the municipalities are on side with this notion of fast-tracking patio space on private and public property, uh, some with a little more difficulty than others. But the, the, the big problem has been Mother Nature here as much as anything else, hasn't it, Sarah? I mean, with it's going to clear, he said, crossing his fingers and touching wood. But it's going to clear out today and be 21 by mid-afternoon. That's patio weather. This, however, if it did not clear out and we had to deal with another crummy rainy day, Sarah, would be the 10th Saturday in a row. This is no help at all to people who really need patio people outside their establishments. I know we need we need to, we need to do the Sundance and we need Mother Nature to cooperate. Although I do see it looking like it's breaking through the clouds, so hopefully you and I will be on one of those patios supporting our our breweries and our small business restaurants this afternoon. I hope so too. Uh, let's talk about the latest uh, item on your very long list of to do, uh, and that's this notion of e bikes and e scooters. Tell us this is going to you're going to bring this up at the next Vancouver City Council meeting next week, and it's all about. About, uh, an e-scooter share service. Flesh this one out for us. It's early in the morning and a lot of people are going, what? Okay, so we don't have e-scooters. Um, they're not legally able to operate uh, in the city of Vancouver. We haven't had them. Other cities like Calgary and Edmonton have had them since 2019 and cities around the U.S. and around the world have them everywhere. It's another micro-mobility option. So in addition to things like the shared Moby bike program, I'm suggesting that we had a shared e-scooter program um, that would be run by a private operator at no cost to the city. Typically, these are licensed and um, there's city charges fees, just like they do for rideshare, uh, where a company pays their license fee um, per company and, and then per car or per scooter they have on the road. Um, but it's green transportation, and I think that it's time that Vancouver had it. Um, we haven't led in this area. Other cities went first, um, and that's given us the opportunity to learn and um, address safety concerns and you know how you make sure that they're stored well. Um, on public space, but I think it's time, and I think Vancouver deserves to have another micro-mobility option. Interesting. Okay. Now, I'm glad that you pointed out that we're not uh, at the tip of the spear on this one, and in this case, it's probably a good thing because this is a service that has stirred up a controversy in more than one location. I'm thinking not only here in North America, Sarah, but I'm thinking also of many European cities that have these electric scooters options available, uh, and the biggest problem, as I recall from some European cities, who seemed to be on this first was the fact that uh, was the storage issue that you alluded to. When, when a person would be finished using the scooter to go from one side of town to the other, they would just walk away, drop it and walk away. And someone had to come by, collect them, take them to a, a gathering place and assumably, presumably charge them back up and get them ready for the next use. Litter was a problem. Yeah, I think that I think that you know technology has evolved, and and I think as as different cities have piloted it, they've figured out um, solutions to this. And one example is parking corrals. So you know you see the Moby bar, um, bikes that are docked in various stations. And yep. Parking corrals are a way to do that. Um, they also have the ability, um, you know, with technology to geofence these and makes it easier to collect them up. And so I feel like um, I feel like those things have been addressed. And I'd also point out that this would be a pilot. Um, the province of BC has opened up the opportunity for different cities to try piloting these things. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. And I think that um, I think um, we'll learn some things probably, but there's a lot of best practices um, in other cities and, and they've been endorsed also, you know, in terms of the safety aspect from an accessibility point of view, mm. um, even by the Canadian National Institute of the Blind that said, as long as you follow these best practices, um, like Calgary and Edmonton have, such as making sure that people are not riding on sidewalks, um, they're using um, protected bike lanes or our slow streets because the city is in the process of implementing a number of slow streets with yes. a limit of 30 kilometers per hour. 
um, I think that that's how you make sure that they work for everybody. Okay, so you indicate, Sarah, that this would likely uh, be operated by a third party at no cost to the city. So how does one go about delegating or selecting that operator? Uh, well, there's a number of operators out there that do this work. People might be familiar with their in their travels and seeing them in other cities like Lyme or Bird. Um, and normally in something like this, the city does an RFP and the companies are invited to respond and the city can decide how many um, services they want to let operate and um, how many that will participate in this pilot. Okay, so you're poking around and, and it sounds pretty, you sound pretty confident that were the request for proposals to go out from City Hall, there would be a number of respondents. I, I am confident. I think that uh, I, th- I think the services uh, are there and accessible. I know that these companies are interested in operating, but more importantly, I know that the residents of Vancouver are interested in having the service. I, you know, I powered up my email this morning when I got up for this interview um, and saw a couple of emails from folks that said, thank you. Um, I've been asking the city for this and, you know, hopefully I'll see you out there riding scooters. Um, and it's a choice for people. It's also green transportation. And, and remember the time of COVID, we had a survey that came out recently that said 55% of people were worried about getting back on transit. Mm-hmm. And so if we have everybody get back in their cars or, or you know, start using cars, that is really not great for the environment. It's not great for communities and building cities. Um, and so I think that this provides another choice. And it can be a short trip because, you know, you need to do some local errands. It can connect people to transit if they don't live right near a, a route. So um, I, I think it has a, a lot of positives, and, and I think people want it. And so let's talk about where, again, I, you've already alluded to it, but I think we need to, it's early, and I think we need to repeat it. Where would these uh, electric scooters be found? In bike lanes only? Uh, and on slow streets only? Uh, I'm just curious as to how they get mixed in to an already congested city. Yeah, that's exactly it, and that's what the the province's pilot, as they're working to develop, you know, permanent legislation around how and where these things are used. But that's what the pilot would allow for on protected bike lanes and on slow streets that have that thirty kilometer limit. And we only have, to the best of my knowledge, we only have one pilot program underway in British Columbia with uh, electric scooters right now, and that's up near Kelowna uh, on the Okanagan Rail Trail. Or are there more? There are more coming online, um, Victoria and other cities that have applied to the province as part of this pilot. Um, and in, in January, the province opened up the program again, allowing more cities to apply um, so that they could have pilots on the road this fall. Um, and that's my suggestion for Vancouver, because what staff are suggesting is only a, is a pilot for next summer and only for private scooters. So only if you own your own. Um, and not everybody can afford to buy a scooter. Um, they want to try it out first and get a sense of it, but sure. not everybody has a thousand dollars to buy one. Um, and so I don't think that's equitable. Um, uh, you know, when people are, they're well, well cash strapped these days, right? Everybody's feeling the pinch with COVID. Um, and I also think that doing a shared pilot gives us better data um, to look at uh, what a program is really going to look like um, and help shape that legislation um, as the province is allowing these trials around. And so uh, from a user perspective, it would be uh, simply an app of some kind that Evo or the, the bike sharing uh, the programs already use. It would be a pretty easy format to uh, fall into. Yeah, they're, they're, they're usually super easy. I was in um, Tel Aviv actually last October and I saw one and it was exactly like that. They, um, they work pretty simply, um, pretty straightforward. Okay, so is it, is it reasonable then to assume that were this proposal to go forward, there would be no cost to Vancouver taxpayers? I'm not expecting that there would be. I mean, as I mentioned, the city's already um, doing a slow streets pilot and implementation. Um, and so that work is happening regardless of whether or not we have a shared scooter pilot um, to try that out. Um, and and that's, that's supporting just the ability for, you know, having safety on local roads um, and letting cyclists and, and enjoy that. So I don't see any incremental costs on this. As I said, in Calgary, they charge fees. So usually there's a fee per company. Um, they the companies pay a $15,000 security deposit, and then they pay a fee per scooter to the city. Ah, okay. So you're going to pitch this uh, this week, uh, the idea being to have the program up and running by, what, uh, Labor Day weekend kind of thing? Um, well, yeah, it'll depend how how, um, how much time staff feel they need to get it you know, up and running well um, in terms of if there, it is possible to do it as early as, as October, November. In the fall, um, staff might feel they want to take a bit more time and do it by spring, but I certainly don't want to wait, a, wait and see us do a, 
a private-only pilot in 2021 because that means it would be summer 2022 before we could even have a shared program, and that's two years away. Um, and then in COVID time, when we're trying to you know replan and, and rejig our cities to make them more people-friendly, I just think that's far too long. Yeah, plus the fact, as you've already said, that there's an urgent need for, for some uh, cash-strapped individuals to get on this uh, ra- rapidly. Uh, we wish you considerable success with this, Sarah. We'll be checking back with you to see how, uh, how it flies at the council table and uh, maybe uh, even to get a schedule set up. Thanks for this this morning. No, thank you. Always a pleasure. Vancouver Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. A new style of song that we mentioned moments ago, sweeping through Canada, pushing out traditional tunes, at least in certain birds. We found this out in an isolated population here in Western Canada. Evidence has been produced from as far as 3,000 kilometers away. At the center of all of this studying of bird songs is Dr. Ken Otter, who is a professor of biology in the Ecosystem Science and Management Program, Natural Resources and Environmental Studies at our university of Northern British Columbia. Dr. Otter joins us today from Prince George. Ken, good morning. Thank you for being with us, sir. Thank you for having me on the show. That's great to have you with us. And just before we get to this bird song, uh, fascinating, fascinating study that you've been part of, Dr. Otter, can we get you just to, to, to give us a sense this morning in Prince George of the urgency that is felt locally with respect to the flood conditions and the flood watch that's underway in your part, in the central uh, part of the province? Uh, how urgent is it in and around Prince George this morning? Well, uh, definitely if uh, people have houses that are close to the water line around the rivers, uh, there is some potential for, for flood damage, but uh, not too many of the houses would be affected, just those that are right along the river edge. Um, but uh, there has been an awful lot of rain up here. And certainly uh, it's uh, pr- produced some evacuation notices in certain communities, not necessarily in Prince George. Uh, and in fact, uh, much of the central interior of B.C. continues all weekend long under flood watch. Are you personally threatened in any way? No, uh, we're kind of lucky. Our place is up a little bit on the hill, so we're, we're well above the waterline. Interesting stuff. Well, thanks for that. I appreciate it. Now let's get to the study at hand. This is interesting. First of all, a little background, if you don't mind, Ken. How long have you been studying birds, and what specific species are we talking about that you literally have heard change its tune? Well, I've, I've been studying birds since uh, the early 1990s, uh, and in the late 1990s, I was offered a job at UMBC, so I moved to Prince George in 1999 and uh, was working actually on chickadees, um, which is my primary study species. But a friend of mine studies the white-throated sparrows, and I noticed there was birds uh, around here, uh, and he was looking for a new population. And one of the things we noticed was that the birds were not singing a very typical song. So this is the white-throated sparrow, and it has a really iconic song. It occurs all across the boreal forests of Canada, east of the Rockies. And there's, their song's supposed to sound like it goes, Oh, my sweet Canada, 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 Canada. And that repeating triplet at the end is, is kind of characteristic of the song all across the continent. Okay. And all of our birds were singing uh, a song that was going, Oh, my sweet Canada, 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 like that. So it was kind of stuttering that last phrase and uh-huh. repeating two notes instead of three. And this is, this is a very common species. I mean, it's, it's entirely possible that it was, as we go through our weekend, we're going to see dozens of these white-throated sparrows in and around Metro Vancouver, aren't we? Not, not in Metro Vancouver. They're actually um, not very common to the south of us. They're, uh, they're, the white-throated sparrow is kind of a boreal forest species, and okay. it's actually a little unusual for it to be in Prince George. I was a bit surprised, and it turned out because, uh, you know, it's not supposed to be breeding uh, west of the Rocky Mountains, or at least the traditional is all the sort of boreal forest east of the Rockies from Yukon all the way to Newfoundland. Okay. But it turned out that there was a uh, expansion of the population, probably from uh, the Peace Region, northeastern BC, came across the Rockies sometime in the 1940s or 50s, and established a little population in sort of central British Columbia, right around Prince George, um, and sort of just in this kind of small little area. So we had this little breakout population, and that was one of the reasons we thought originally that the song had arisen. It was like a small population cut off from the rest of the the species. And 
in those kind of peripheral edge uh, of the species range, it's much more likely for you uh, birds to get errors in songs, and then those get copied because there's just so few tutors for the young birds to actually listen to that it kind of is much more common for these kind of rare song variants to pop up. So the young birds uh, then essentially grow up not understanding anything other than what they've learned, which is this new not typical call of of the species, but it's unique to this remote population. So if that's the case then, Ken, how did you manage to, and I'm interested in the size of the study group as well, but how did you manage to locate birds 3,000 kilometers away that had this same weird uh, twist to the call, to their song, that this isolated BC population had? Well, that, that was slightly fortuitous because my collaborator on the study is uh, Scott Ramsey. And Scott and I went through our graduate uh, programs. We did our PhDs in the same lab and kind of moved off after our PhDs to, to work on different things. I was continuing to work on chickadees, and he was working on sparrows. Okay. And he came out for a couple of years in the early 2000s to, to sort of study our population but then got a job as a professor at Wilfrid Laurier University in Ontario, Mm -hmm. moved back to to Ontario, or was back in Ontario, and he took over the long-term research population of white-throated sparrows in Algonquin Park uh, in eastern Ontario that had been studied for about, uh, you know, 50 or 60 years. And so he started studying the birds out in Algonquin Park, and uh, in the late 2000s, a couple of the birds in his population started singing this new dialect, and it was you know one or two birds. Right. But but in the early 2010s, it started to expand in that population. They started to have you know 20 percent uh, of up to 20 percent of birds actually singing our new song, and we suddenly realized that you know some other studies that we had done going back to Alberta, where we'd originally studied where the dialect boundary was and found that all the birds now were singing the Western song, we realized that it must be starting to move. And that's where we started to enlist citizen scientists and colleagues from across the continent to sort of send us our song so we could try and track this, and discovered that it had shifted all the way into Ontario. And uh, by 2017, when we went back out to Algonquin for, to, uh, to, to study Scott's population, about half of the birds were now singing this Western dialect. Interesting. I've only got 30 seconds. Did the, did the shift occur because some birds migrated back east? Is that the logical conclusion? What we think happened is some of our birds overwinter with the birds across the Canadian prairies, and so those birds, those juvenile birds, heard our birds singing, Aha. picked up the song, and spread it to other populations. Fascinating stuff, and, and, and what interesting work, and what, what lovely findings, what melodic findings to be able to share with us on a Saturday morning. Ken Otter, thank you very much for this. We appreciate the work, and we appreciate your time this morning and sharing it with us. Well, thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. Dr. Ken Otter from the Biology Department at the University of Northern British Columbia. Interesting stuff. Kind of fun, too, huh?